people expected change in the last election mm. and they did not get it mm. so now they demand change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find like we're also in those times right where change yeah. is yeah it's a thing mm-hmm. is all I'm saying yeah. and, and people feel it's possible and I'm betting on change for the better and other people are betting on yeah. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. else <laughs> Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. So today we have a special guest, Lyra Evans. Yes, you pronounced my name correctly. I know. <laughs> Listen, I have a name thing. Like, mm-hmm. I, you, I will mess up Smith. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and and this has been proved over and over again. Lyra Titania Evans, for those who are curious. Titania. Titania. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, that's oh, oh. I I feel like I feel like this is a new discovery. I love it. Mm-hmm. Where does it come from? Uh it's the fairy queen from Shakespeare and like classical European mythology. Awesome. It means daughter of the Titans in Greek. It's like yeah. Well, excuse me, royalty here. So you are the MPP candidate or the provincial candidate for Ottawa Vanier for the NDP. For the NDP, yes, I am. And so, welcome. Hi, great to be here. Fabulous. So, um, I guess when uh, Amy had proposed that you come onto the pod, mm-hmm. I knew nothing about you. <laughs> Until today, <laughs> in prep for this podcast. Doing your homework at the last minute, like of everyone course, else. Of course, of <laughs> course. Lyra Evans is a community organizer and an LGBTQ plus activist. She was a homeless, uh, homeless as a teenager, giving her firsthand experience and what it's like to deal with the shelter and transitional housing system. She's now uh, running for office. Lyra has a years of experience as a youth facilitator and a volunteer manager at Kind Space in the Youth Services Bureau of Ottawa. She's a student at the University of Ottawa and is the first transgender candidate of a major political party in Ontario. We're very happy to have her with us today. Thank you. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us a little bit about your backstory. So being a homeless teen, um, were you, did you grow up in Ottawa? I grew up in what is now Ottawa. I, was, uh, I grew up in Carp, you know where Carp oh, yeah. is? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and when I grew up there, it wasn't part of Ottawa yet. It was yeah. still part of the West Carlton region. Okay. And so it was like a town of 2,000 people. It had farms on the main road. Mm-hmm. It was defined by the intersection mm. uh, with the general store and the <laughs> post office. Like, yeah. And a couple, like a pub and a restaurant. And the one, so the one street light, the, uh, like. There's no street light there. No street light. <laughs> no street light. <laughs> I feel like this is a place where everybody knows each other's business. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, that's where I grew up. Yeah. Um, and then I moved into the city proper uh, when I was maybe 12, 13, 13-ish. Um, I moved into Westboro. And we stayed there for a year, I believe, and then jumped to Old Ottawa South. And then I ended up homeless for reasons we'll go into later. Okay. Okay. And then I ended up uh, like staying with myriads of friends and just yeah. hanging out in the market and living in the shelter systems in the in lower town. Yeah. 
And so I was in and out of the shelters and the transitional housing programs. And yeah. So you experienced many facets of it, like mm-hmm. underhoused, not like in, invisible homeless population that we probably mm-hmm. don't know because maybe you weren't in shelters all the time. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I got to speak or I got to complain over Twitter, which is like speaking <laughs> about the, oh, no. <laughs> about the uh, survey that the city of Ottawa did recently. Yeah, I saw because that. They were going around trying. They, they were trying to, they were trying to count survey. Yeah. the homeless, and they only checked the shelters, and they did online, like they did an online poll, and like that was their that was their plan to count the, the invisible homeless population in Ottawa. And I <laughs> Erica was like, just cocked her head, like, "What? <laughs> That's not quite effective." Yeah, it seems like. And so yeah. my worry was they were going to like drastically under underestimate the population, mm-hmm. and then fund accordingly. And if they were funding for a population that is half the size they think it is, then there's a ton of people who aren't going to be able to access services because the funding isn't there to have the services exist. Absolutely. We'll get it. We'll get more into your, like, you also know a lot. You've done a lot of activism in this area as well, which I I think is really cool. Um, I started volunteering at the Youth Services Bureau almost a decade ago, and I ended up stopping. You're 25 now. Yeah. I know. I ended up stopping when I was 23. Okay. Um, so that was a while, mm-hmm. uh, 23, 24. I stopped when I was, I guess, goodness too. gracious, <laughs> it's all good. I believe I stopped in 2017 yeah. in like October. Oh, so, so fairly recently. So fairly recently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I stopped for my second year of school. Okay. Um, so, mm-hmm. so what is it at the, if through your volunteering at the youth services bureau, that kind of informed your positions, let's say, mm-hmm. today. So um, they take a harm reduction model of dealing with homelessness, and like, you know, also in dealing with like drug and alcohol use, and dealing with sexual behavior, and dealing with like issues in general. And can you explain that model? Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the harm reduction model is in contrast to the. Uh, abstinence-only models, Ah. where you see things like groups will come out and say the only way to have safe sex is to not have sex. And uh, harm reduction people will come out and say, you can, if you were going to have sex, here's how to do it more safely. Mm -hmm. Or if you were going to use injection drugs, here's how to do it more safely. Mm -hmm. And that's how we get programs like needle exchanges in the Mm -hmm. city of Ottawa. Because people say, we need... We need to make sure that people are, like, safe. Because we can't just say, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Because people will do it. As your goal is to make sure that as few people as possible are harmed by it, then you should be, like, working to make sure that these people are, like, able to do what they're going to do regardless as safely as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's an example of meeting people where they are instead of where you want them to be, yes. basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is that a model that you carry forward in terms of looking at issues? Absolutely. Okay. I think that a lot of policy has been created with the expectation that people will be where you want them to be and not with where they are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly around like uh, drug and substance use. While I was homeless, I knew a lot of people who struggled with substance abuse issues. And so those people... Um, a lot of the programs that existed weren't as helpful as they could have been if they had been created with a harm reduction model in mind. 
Mm-hmm. So instead of, um, and how does that affect funding for those? So for example, what I'm thinking of is, um, do we, f- if we fund according to say an abstinence only model, mm-hmm. how does that change the dynamic of the support that people get? So let's talk about um, funding an absence-only model for sex education. Right. If we put all of the the resources that we are going to, I'm going to use a million dollars because I like nice round numbers. (laughs) If we put a million dollars into educating people about the dangers of sex and why we shouldn't be having sex, people are going to do it anyways. And then they're going to have less information about how to do so safely. Right. And so you have taken a million dollars into like educating people, or I'm going to put air quotes around educating people. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that isn't helpful to their, their actual needs. Mm-hmm. And you've put no money into giving people like the resources they need, whether they be condoms or dental dams or uh, knowledge about how to have safer sex. And so I'm kind of curious about how you got to um, like getting involved in, in activism on these issues. Like you were living a particular experience mm-hmm. that probably brought you close to some of the institutions doing this work Mm -hmm. but then how did like what is it what did it take to become or see yourself as an activist or an advocate there was a lot of need in these communities there were a lot of people who i believe were and still are underrepresented and who don't have a voice in the legislature and who don't have a voice in society Mm -hmm. how many homeless do we walk by on the way to and from work that you don't look at or talk to countless countless mm-hmm. like every day yeah even the nicest kindest people so-called in day-to-day lives probably do that mm-hmm. and so having been the person who sat on the side of the street mm-hmm. and looked up i recognized just how ignored these people were mm-hmm. and so i said these people need an advocate who can articulate at least reasonably well mm-hmm. in defense of their needs who can go to bat for them and who can try and lobby policy And that's why I began to try and advocate for these groups. Um, I advocated while I was homeless, and I continued to advocate after I became stably housed. Mm -hmm. Um, I also do a fair amount of advocacy for the uh, LGBTQ community Mm -hmm. because similar reasons. I saw a lot of... There was a study that came out, uh, might be two years ago now, maybe two and a half, uh, from the Youth Services Bureau that about 40% of uh, homeless young people are LGBTQ. Oh, wow. That's staggering. It is, especially when you look at the percentage of the population that the LGBTQ population, or part of the population the LGBTQ community makes up, uh, which is like between 3 and 5% of the population. So they are eight times as likely to be homeless as as a non-LGBTQ youth. And so what's the reason for that? Um, Probably a lot. So... I'm going to go ahead and say it probably has to do with a lot of family intolerance. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but many of the LGBTQ people I spoke to had trouble at home because of them being LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. So right. mm-hmm. so they would be kicked out mm-hmm. on the street, nothing mm-hmm. to... Or their parents would make their... They'd be like, you can live here, but you can't have a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't be a lesbian or they couldn't, they couldn't be openly gay. Right. Um, and so they would be forced to make impossible choices right. yeah. about being un- who they are against... Yeah like yeah having a roof over your head mm-hmm. yeah i believe Learn that from my happened. being lgbtq had a, like a part to do with why i ended up homeless okay okay mm-hmm. um i i ended up homeless like on and off mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so when was it that you would say you first became politically aware as a young person so 
I would argue that all activism is political. Mm-hmm. I would argue that everybody yeah. who oh for sure yeah yeah everybody who shows up to a protest and says environmental rights are important or indigenous rights are important mm-hmm. regardless of their like partisan politics affiliation those people are doing something political Absolutely. Um, and so I became politically aware and politically engaged when I was starting to advocate for the homeless mm-hmm. I became partisanly politically aware <laughs> uh, about. <laughs> 18 months, two years ago, okay. um, when yeah. I recognized, so I did a lot of volunteer work. Mm-hmm. I did literally thousands of hours of volunteer work yeah. uh, over like a two or three year period to try and help the communities I found needed help. Wow. Um, yeah, no, uh, I applied to be on the Trudeau's Youth Council mm-hmm. and they were like, add up all your volunteer hours for the for the past two years. <laughs> and I was like 3,000 and change. And they were like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so many advocates tend, that we see or that we hear from, mm-hmm. because I know a lot of people advocate from a firsthand experience, mm-hmm. but we don't, we often say they're biased or that they mm-hmm. are, you know, that they're a fringe or that they're not, they're not advocates per se. Mm-hmm. And then we professionalize the role of advocates to lawyers and social workers and politicians and people who are outsiders who can appear neutral Mm -hmm. and then present themselves as like the expert on a thing and so rarely are the people affected by you know the issue whatever the issue may be put out as as advocates and and experts I think that's super radical Mm -hmm. we talk about it a lot in about policy making on our podcast because I think we're really we're really frustrated by Mm -hmm. that yes yeah well, I think the um, one of the things, too, is that I, I will always say that Barack Obama changed politics forever in the sense that all of a sudden grassroots organizing was not was not a dirty concept. Although people mm-hmm. tried to make it out to be. They were like, he was a they community did. organizer. They did. And you know, what it, is that? Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember Rudy Giuliani yeah. saying like, that. What is Oprah or whatever? Like yeah. Heard, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they, and, but, but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I hope that we are recognizing that lived experience mm-hmm. is expertise in itself. Mm-hmm. And so how does your expertise in homelessness, in LGBTQ issues, especially surrounding homelessness, um, inform your uh, your ideas about other issues, such as healthcare, education. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard you talk about marijuana mm-hmm. on a previous interview. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> even electricity I guess I'm really on this electricity hydro one thing because I have bills okay yeah. um, but you so know those kinds let's talk of about intersectionalism are. and intersectionality yes please um, so the homeless population is probably one of the populations that has the most emergency visits of any given population mm-hmm. they're going to be the ones who are going to see more doctors than almost any population mm-hmm. they're going to be the people who um struggle the most with substance use. They're going to have the most interactions with the police. They're a population that is going to be using a lot of the services that are, like, designed to help them, whether they be housing services or whether they be, uh, like, uh, like drug addiction programs. Those are almost all provincial jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And so I have 
been, I've had firsthand experience and a lot of people that I know have had firsthand experience dealing with the systems around us and the systems that the government creates to try and help people. Well, and the, and the big issue I've been to for a lot of organizations is that there's no institutional funding. There's no funding for um, organizations themselves just day to day, but it's all program. project yeah. project and program budget. That's like one off. Yeah. It's all about what you're talking you about. What's called core funding, right? Yes, uh, core funding. <laughs> yeah. So the city of Ottawa right now has a fixed number of organizations. I want to say it's 19 or 22. So no, no core funding for new groups. Yeah. But I'm sure they'd love to uh, pay for a program that gave them something to talk about for a short period of time and mm-hmm. some quick numbers. To... A, ri- a ribbon to cut, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, that's, uh, that's all that mm-hmm. you know. We happen to see, like, and I know for a fact so many organizations around town, and you know, I mean, right now the big conversations around the sexual assault centers and. And groups that do that work, it's it's always been, always in the last number of years, it's always been program and project funding, mm-hmm. no, very yep. little by way of core funding. We need to find a way for, like, regular maintenance to have a ribbon cutting so that politicians yeah. will fund it properly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when did you get involved in the NDP specifically? So that would have been uh, about more than a year ago, but less than two. Mm-hmm. I sort of shopped around for figuring out which political party's beliefs lined up with mine, because I was... I was politically engaged, mm. but I wasn't partisan politically engaged. I knew I had my values, I had my beliefs, I knew what I wanted to see from government, but I didn't have, like, an idea of what parties, what the party stood for. And so I figured out that the NDP needed far less arm-twisting to be where <laughs> I wanted to see them. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. than yeah. any of the other political parties. Yeah. And so I got a membership to the NDP. Um, and I was going to go to the provincial convention last year, but I couldn't make it because I had an exam, like, the day, either the day before or the day after, and I couldn't get a travel schedule together in time to, to get there and back and still meet my exam. Uh, but I went to the federal convention this last year, this last February. <laughs> um, the NDP in particular has failed grassroots organizers. Uh, over the past 20 I'm years. I'm glad you brought this up because that was going mm-hmm. to be my next question <laughs> as to how I think one of the, so I look at um, the Democrats in the States, for example. And they have failed grassroots organizers even harder than we have. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And they have an opportunity and they're pissing it away. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question is, how do how do political parties in general fail grassroots organizers? And I, I ask this because, as I said before, I really do think that the grassroots informs the structure, but the structure has to listen. I believe that the structure should take the grassroots and say, okay, let's let's put it into mm-hmm. let's um, translate it into the existing structure. How does how do um, political parties in general um, fail the grassroots and how what can the NDP specifically do to have more of that balance especially mm-hmm. in in the a positional power yeah within the party okay so um, do you want me to answer how or why they fail grassroots communities let's start with <laughs> oh I you know what you're so precise okay 
So that chemistry, I'm telling damn you. Damn it. It's the science background. I know. I know. Okay. Social scientists were like, we can just... Let's start with how and then go with why. Okay. (laughs) So I would argue that uh, political parties fail grassroots organizers by not making it easily accessible for people to, from grassroots backgrounds, to get involved. There is a procedure at convention. There is a financial barrier to convention. Mm -hmm. There is a, like, there is a level of, like, stepping back that a lot of grassroots organizers find difficult to work with mm. um, as a long-time grassroots organizer i liked to be able to talk with people and to try and figure things out and to be like personally engaged but mm. political parties are vast by their very nature and it's much harder to have a conversation or and i would argue that it would definitely was much harder to have a conversation 30 years ago between newfoundland bc and ontario mm. and to try and talk about things or even between windsor and Ottawa and Thunder Bay, because mm-hmm. those are hours of distance apart. Yeah. Um, and I don't think political parties have caught up with the internet as much as I would like to have seen them have done so. In what way? I think that, for example, um, the resolution process that happens at the NDP convention is based on piling a bunch of people in a room and then trying to decide which ones come up on top by voting things through in the room. And there was a proposal brought forward where every member of the NDP gets, like, a code to go on the internet and mark up or down the proposals and try and get an order like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is a lot more democratic than the room system, which is based on who can attend convention and Mm -hmm. who has the, what was convention, $300? Yeah, something like that. $300 for the ticket plus whatever your travel costs were. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, and they subsidize a certain number of people, but that's, like pales in comparison to the entire NDP base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you, I, and you yeah. sort of have to have an in with the ride, like a riding association to mm-hmm. get a ticket yeah. even that is like subsidized. And yeah. You also have a to lot, be able to take a week off work. There's a lot of impediments. You need, yeah, time off mm-hmm. work, um, which yeah, will, ability to travel, yeah. some aspects of the convention were physically inaccessible or were inaccessible in other ways. Like even once you got there, mm-hmm. Or not hospitable, or even safe spaces for some folks. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really frustrating. And the worst thing about that discussion, as it happened on the floor, and ultimately we were successful, and that resolution passed. Mm-hmm. But there was resistance, and people had the people who are part of the institution of the party, who staff or former staff, and people from the leader's office had a line, like, "This is open to being abused." And, you know, it's going to, to it's people. actually not accessible because people can't get high-speed internet in all parts of camp. To like, the people <laughs> who say that, I would say, we passed our census like this mm. by giving people a code and saying, go on and complete your, mm-hmm. complete your data. And then we said, for people who can't do that, we'll mail you a piece of, That's right. yeah. a piece of, yeah. or a, a form. Yeah. And they were comfortable doing the leadership vote for the NDP like that, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. They're just pick they're picking they pick and choose when it's convenient for them to mm-hmm. open the door to people. Well, that's I would problem. argue that's to their own detriment. I, yeah, I think that's what Lyra's arguing yeah. too, for sure. Mm-hmm. And in in sense of that in that cross sort of pollinization. So, um I'm now gonna actually I'm gonna cut you off and I'm gonna answer why. Okay, go ahead. Um and now the reason I believe political parties, particularly the Democrats in the States or the, the NDP in Canada have failed grassroots organizers is because of the first past the post system 
mm-hmm. where if you the the people who run the the people who run the NDP are worried that if you put forward something that is too different, you're going to alienate the median voter. And there's air quotes around that for, for those who can't see it. <laughs> um, where you're going to be able to like, you're going to push the the average person away. The air quotes came back. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, because you're you're too radical or you're too different or you're too like proposing something they haven't or don't want to consider. Um, and so the the party establishment wants to produce some change. They want to try and advocate for people. They'd rather advocate for people and therefore commit to less progressive or less radical or less different proposals so that they get to do something as opposed to committing to like something very far from center and then getting no electoral power. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would argue though that obviously in the last federal election that didn't work very well. The last federal election was a screw up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so we are never going to out liberal the liberals. <laughs> um we should. We are a progressive party. It's who we are as, as a group of people. We believe in progressive change, and when we committed to the balanced budget, and when we committed to, uh, like, we got out lefted. Oh, I, I know. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was the most hilarious. Well, hilarious. Not as in it was more hilarious, ironic. Like watching a train wreck. Yes, like like I like there was just irony there all abound because I thought, I thought, how is it that you know Winky Blue Eyes there could <laughs> outflag out out progress the progressive? You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, this balanced budget talk, I was like, Mm -hmm. when did that become NDP? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that we should be balancing the budget on the back of raising taxes Mm -hmm. on the corporations and the people who can afford it. Mm -hmm. Because I don't hate balanced budgets. I hate balanced budgets that come at the expense of services or come Mm -hmm. at the expense of jobs for the public service. Well, I think that's what's really frustrating is that requires an explanation, and you explain it really well. Like, that was like, Succinct, I think anyone could understand that the NDP shies away from having to explain things to voters. Mm-hmm. They are they they're like, this is the narrative. We are trapped in this, you know, relegated to this third party status. Mm-hmm. How do we get Not people this provincial to election? No, no, <laughs> and we'll talk about that. Uh, it's very exciting, but and at mm-hmm. that moment when Tom botched the federal election, we weren't either. We it was ours to lose, and we were, you know, at least hoping to maintain official opposition and didn't, mm-hmm. couldn't achieve that because we couldn't find a way to explain Healthcare, to people. Pharmacare. Yeah. Daycare. <laughs> Don't do it. Mole care. No. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. It hurts my ears every time. Uh, <laughs> when your leader says it like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, he's very unins- he was very uninspired and, and part of the problem is that he himself um, was not committed to certain values. So, and there was a little bit of play acting, and that's where having he, a strong party matters. He was widely respected as an excellent legislature. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of. He was a very strong person in the house. He was excellent sure. in question period and excellent. And he's at, smart in, on the files he knows. Yeah, um, I just don't think he was as an, and like comparing him to Justin Trudeau, who's someone who inarguably is charismatic. Mm-hmm. We can argue about what that means, but <laughs> Justin Trudeau 
had the charisma to win a federal election sure. on the back of almost no like record <laughs> that takes charisma yeah. it um, just goes that politics is a people's game and i i feel like the parties themselves choose on the exact um characteristics that you two are just talking about well he was excellent in question period yeah he was in opposition he wasn't running the whole show the, the man was the least charismatic person. I I, I just uh, since Stephen Harper really, and you know I mean, and that's part that part of the problem was like the NDP was looking for someone who looked like they could govern, and they wanted to talk as if they could govern. And our models for that are Stephen Harper type people, or you know elder statesman type people who look and talk and act a certain way and won't say radical things and sound steady and firm and they don't talk they talk about balanced budgets and they don't explain what that means and what it looks like and they don't mm-hmm. want to do the hard work of educating people which actually isn't that hard because Larry explained it beautifully of what it means to change how we do politics or to do politics better mm-hmm. and to have re- responsible mm-hmm. budgeting and responsible governance that doesn't mean you know we punish people for giving mm-hmm. you know in exchange for taking and then take away government services we can mm-hmm. do that and we can do it responsibly mm-hmm. they want to have that conversation they wanted to have an actor essentially sit in the chair say that he could sit in the chair of prime minister and and look how prime ministerial he is mm-hmm. he, he he just looked angry <laughs> i would i would argue that both jagmeet and uh andrea horwath the leader mm-hmm. of the ontario ndp and jagmeet the leader of the federal ndp look Prime Ministerial. Oh, in my I, eyes. I agree. Or premierial. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would argue that those people look like politicians, and that they look like they could lead very successfully. Mm-hmm. And to people who like think otherwise, I'm going to ask them to think about why they think otherwise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Retweet if you know why. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are your top three issues then, or uh, four or five? If you, <laughs> you know what. What are your top issues that you are like, I want to go in and I mm-hmm. want to hit these issues? So I think... And why? Okay. okay. <laughs> and how? <laughs> um, so I would... So there's a, a local shelter that's being like conglomerated in my riding that a lot of people are very upset about. This is the Salvation Army? This is the Salvation Army shelter. Um, you oppose it. I do. Okay. Um, I am of the belief that building 350 person shelters is not where we should be going for addressing homelessness. Hmm. There are different models of addressing homelessness. There's that- a services first and a housing first model of addressing homelessness. Um, and the services first model is the one that we have now where we create services to help people who are homeless. And then by giving them access to drug programs or rehab centers, by giving them access to mental health care, by giving them access to job training, they will stop being homeless by having these skills or help that they need. The other model of dealing with homelessness is called Housing First. And the model of Housing First is you give them a house and then help them with their drug problems or their mental health issues or finding a job. And one of these has people... I don't know if you've ever been inside a shelter. Have you ever been inside a shelter? Yes, I have. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Lots what, of cots. Yes. Mm-hmm. So um, the inside of... It's a little dark sometimes. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's a warehouse. Mm-hmm. And it's a warehouse full of cots spaced about a meter apart. Mm-hmm. And so... And they just line people up. And it's not... It's not a place to live. Mm-hmm. It's right. 
a place to lie down for eight hours. Right. And so we're not helping these people by warehousing them away. And I specifically take issue with warehousing them 45 minutes from all the services we put in a specific area to help mm. them. So do you know where the sexual health clinic is? The one that's right in the market? The one on Clarence in yeah. the market, yeah. yeah. Do you know where, like, uh, like rehab programs and addiction centers and job stuff, job uh, yeah. training programs, uh, the court system, because a lot of people who are struggling with homelessness are also mm-hmm. engaged in co- the court system. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things... Market, center town. Market, yeah. center town. Yeah. The City Vanier, Hall courts, yeah. The Vanier is a forty. The Vanier shelter is a forty-five minute walk away, mm-hmm. and I can tell you that when I was homeless, the difference between something being a ten-minute walk and being a forty-five-minute walk in the winter yeah. was the difference between me going to a hot lunch program and eating lunch that day versus not. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so these are not people who own cars. They're not people who are going to be taking the bus because the bus has gone up to like. 350. Don't even talk to me about bloody OC Transpo. I am hot. I am so pissed off about the state of OC Transpo. I can't even. Okay, yeah. go on. Uh, I just had to have that. Can I jump on the bandwagon? Yeah. <laughs> go. Uh, so the OC Transpo, like, there was a decision that OC Transpo made to remove the, the bus tickets. Yes. And mm-hmm. a lot of community organizations opposed removing bus tickets. Dumb idea. they could buy bus tickets in bulk. And give them out to people who needed them. Mm-hmm. And you can't just give, like, somebody... Presto who's, passes. You can't... Reload them, yeah. Presto passes are, like, seven or ten bucks... For the card itself. For the card. Yeah. Um, no money and then, on it. No money on it. And then you need to give, like... Uh, you need to be able to load it. You can't just load someone else's Presto card yeah. super easily, especially if they're... Passwords, yeah. it's, like, lock-protected. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have to ha- go online to do it. And Not and, only that, you could mm-hmm. be able to go to your corn, some corner quickie or oh, Max yeah. or whatever yeah. and get those tickets, yeah, too. Yeah. The accessibility of the Presto card mm-hmm. has been severely reduced. And people yep. could give theirs away. I'd have exactly. Exactly. give them away. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, and... Community organizations have a lot more difficulty giving cash, giving mm-hmm. like three fifty to a person who's struggling with addiction, mm-hmm. and being like, you, you use it to take the bus home, because they fear that the person isn't going to use it to take the bus home. Yeah, which is a whole mm-hmm. other yeah bullshit thing. But <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah. like having known people who are cycling through addiction, mm-hmm. they would not have used the money to take yeah. the bus home. Right, and so it meant that they would have stayed out in the cold and tried mm-hmm. to to walk the forty five minutes instead, mm-hmm. and like. This is this is just endemic of how we mistreat the homeless, right. and so and our programs are not made with that perspective in mind. No, we do like the band aid solutions to our the one stop shop, and that's it. Mm-hmm. We patch them up and then send them out. I also have ethical issues with the Salvation Army being chosen because. I don't know if you're aware, but Salvation Army has a long history of, of, like, L- of L- anti-LGBTQ policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so whether or not um, this is like something that is currently going on in Ottawa, no, no attempt to make up with the community has happened I see. in Ottawa. And oh, so like the police. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to that. <laughs> I'm sure we will. <laughs> um... I know it sounds politically terrible to be like, I'm against the shelter, but it's because I believe we should be doing better. Because I don't believe that continuing to use the 18th century model of dealing with homelessness by putting a roof over their head and just giving them somewhere to sleep is going to, is 
sustainable long term. It reminds me of the like uh, pharmacare for people under twenty five. Because mm. mm-hmm. that because your chronic illnesses definitely stop after you're twenty five. You mm-hmm. just you just you're suddenly so much better. When you turn twenty six, <laughs> you can afford ten thousand dollars a month in cancer medication. Uh, right? Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Well, I I also think that these programs are based on a trajectory of people's mm-hmm. lives that doesn't fit anymore. It often doesn't line up. Yeah. It does not. I mean, people are in, if you're in school, you're in school longer. Mm-hmm. If you're not in school, housing, mm-hmm. um, student loans or whatever. It took me years to break the cycle of homelessness. Yes. And I don't think that should be the case for, especially for young, like for teenagers. Yes. You shouldn't have teenagers spending years on the streets because mm-hmm. there's a 10 year wait list in community housing. Right. Oh, Oh, yeah, you didn't know that? No. <laughs> Ottawa Community Housing has a 10-year wait list, 10 to 12-year wait list. There's more people waiting for affordable housing than living in wow. community housing. So is it that we just need to we just need to build more community housing, open up more spaces? What do you think? I'm not sure that that first order mm-hmm. sort of solution is the long-term solutions that we're talking about here. Let's talk about inclusionary zoning. Okay. Um, Take it away. So inclusionary zoning is where the province or the federal government gives municipalities the right to say, dear developer, we're aware that you want to put a hundred unit building up here. In order for you to get this building permit, we are going to require you to give, and then you pick a percentage, whether it's 10 or 15 or 30. Uh, I've seen numbers go as high as 50 in high transit, high density, mm-hmm. or high transit, high requirement areas, mm-hmm. percent of the units to our community housing group. Okay instead of selling them off to the general public. Mm-hmm. And the building developers would still make money because they would Making cost... it in a desirable location and people want to live and there. And they would cost it in. They'd be yeah. like, okay, we're going to have to give the percentage of the units away, so we'll have to build it a little bit taller or we'll have yeah. to build it a little bit differently. Right. Right. Uh, but they'll still make money off of it. And that means... They're making money hand over fist. They're going to be fine. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. Um, and so that's that's a like long term because it's... A lot of the community housing that exists in Ottawa right now was built in the 60s through, like, the late 60s to early 80s. Mm. It's approaching 40 years old, and the city would have to turn around and build more and more units or completely renovate the buildings that they have. And the inclusionary zoning model works forwards. Mm-hmm. As long as the city is willing to, to use what has been, like, a tool that's been given to them mm. once it's been given to them, then they can make sure there's enough community housing that people won't end up on a 10-year wait list because they will own enough buildings and you create mixed income neighborhoods. Thank you. We're in Hintonburg right now, which Mm -hmm. used to be more mixed income. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I do believe that with, if it had been more of that mixed working class, young families, older mm-hmm. people, that, that mixed income neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that the death of Adir Men Abdi may not have happened. Mm-hmm. Because there are certain attitudes that come with, with you know... Money? Yes. Just say money. <laughs> Just, yeah. With people with money who are comfortable... And who go to the cottage. I, I'm on this cottage thing, by the way. cottage mm-hmm. people. The cottage people. It's for mm-hmm. shorthand for uh, white privilege. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say that that is something 
to and I, I really do think it 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 builds a more informed society mm-hmm. if you grow up amongst people who are just different from you. Mm-hmm. And apparently like I don't know what it is, but Yes, I do. Well, it takes away that sense of entitlement. That right. That is mine and I can exclude other people from it and I've paid for it and therefore I get to determine what it looks like and how it feels like and when I get what I want and when I don't and who I can bring in and who I can expel and, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Um... <laughs> Let's switch gears a little bit. So that okay. was... Oh, do you want that to was, That was my first issue. Oh my gosh. Issues. Of course. First and second you issue. You give Lyra too much room. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. So my first my first issue was like... Um, actually, that was all one issue. That was access to affordable housing. <laughs> so I would argue that probably my second biggest issue is um, access to affordable and meaningful health care. Mm. Uh, and so that, that can mean a lot of things. I would say that it needs to include pharmacare. It needs to make sure that people who take their medicate, who can't afford to take their medication, start to be able to do so. When you go to the doctor and they prescribe you something, it's because you need it. And so medication should be covered for everyone. And people will argue, well, why don't we use the system that Quebec has and just create a payer of uh, last resort, where if there isn't another, another person willing, well, you can write insurance through private insurance or through work insurance or through something else, then, then we'll cover it. And my answer to that is, when you look at countries around the world, Australia, New Zealand, their national pharmacare programs pay way less per drug than we do in Canada, Mm -hmm. because they can argue as one body. Mm -hmm. They're both buying. They are. Mm -hmm. And we, Ontario is bigger than New Zealand, both (laughs) geographically and (laughs) population-wise. We should be using a first... A, a payer first resort system yeah. where the government says we're going to buy all the drugs that we need in bulk from these companies and we're going to like negotiate them down in price so they're not just like $10,000 a pill mm. and then we're going to like make sure that everyone who needs it has it. Uh, people would be surprised. I think a lot of folks who are able-bodied and don't appreciate what chronic illness costs don't understand how expensive some of these drugs are. I know that. Let's talk about cancer. We talk about cancer, but we can talk about other chronic illnesses too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I the, I have Crohn's and my brother has Crohn's and it's $10,000 for like a dose of medication that he's required to be on and he's under mm-hmm. 25 and covered by Trillium as well. Does it like pass that likely? But it's like so many hurdles until you qualify mm-hmm. and then you're not guaranteed anything, which is the other problem with the Quebec model is the more barriers you make, you have to go prove that you have no, no other means. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just going to prevent people who already mm-hmm. don't have the time to go see a doctor. Yep. To then go and apply to the different funding bodies to qualify to get paid. And then what happens to them in the intervening weeks until they're approved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I had a meeting with um, cancer advocacy groups, cancer patients and cancer survivors, mm. uh, a little bit more than a month ago, I believe, um, in in my writing, yeah. uh, which is not in Hintonburg. <laughs> um, uh, so we, and like I talked to people, and people there were like, cancer medication can be ten or $15,000 a month, and it's not covered, like the long take-home drugs aren't covered by... Uh, benefit plans or they're not or that you hit the cap on the benefit plan really quickly and then you are like in the lurch Mm -hmm. so 
I think that universal pharmacare is something that we need. And like while we're on the topic, I think pharmacare should include medically necessary devices. Yeah. Whether that is um, needles for diabetics who need mm-hmm. to, like type one diabetics who need to take insulin shots, whether that is a wheelchair, or whether that is like anything that has been determined to be necessary. Dental care needs to be your whole body, all parts of it. <laughs> How strange is that? That we're like, um, everything below the neck, but that's not like ever the brain. Yeah, everything <laughs> but the. Look, I don't even know how they decided that. Mm-hmm. It's it boggles my mind. I'm going to use this healthcare to segue onto my third favorite thing, mm-hmm. and that is raising taxes on. Oh no, I've got one French to talk about healthcare. Um, so, do either of you folks know anyone in a long-term care facility? No, I don't. Parents, grandparents? No. I well, I know. I I know. Something yeah, you call them. Yes, yes, I, mean, I actually do. In my community, do. we just, like, keep looking after them. Well, uh, <laughs> you, you bring up an interesting point there, Amy. But I, just, I will, I'll, I'll... I actually don't know anyone. I'm just thinking, like, oh, is that weird? No, because, because I think in a lot of cultures that are North American cultures, yeah. we take care of our seniors. Sometimes not great. Elder abuse hey, is real. Hey, but, I, um, I didn't say it was great. Yeah, yeah, I just but want to clarify. Just, I don't want anyone to yeah. think I'm saying this is necessarily better. I'm just, I'm just, I just thought of it. I was just mm-hmm. thinking about that as an experience, but. Yeah, the other, we also. So like, seniors, yeah. Seniors or people with long-term disabilities. Right. Uh, who, like, don't have family members who can care for them. Mm-hmm. Or lots of people end up using long-term care facilities. Yeah. People who get dementia mm-hmm. um, often require like long term care yeah. yeah yeah or like part time care not in their house that's right. where they're like lucid yeah. in the morning and as it as the day goes on they become less yeah. and less lucid yeah. um so right now there's a shortage of long term care beds and we have a population bubble that is that is coming for us um that's going to impact everything as mm-hmm. you talk about health care it is as you talk and um we were kind of touching on just poverty in general mm-hmm. And the amount of seniors... We'll that, get the poverty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you really shouldn't have had me on if you want me to talk forever. Oh, <laughs> well, no, we do. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I was talking about long-term care facilities mm-hmm. and making sure that we have a number of long-term care beds in existence, like publicly funded long-term care beds, so that right now we're putting people with dementia in hospitals because there isn't space to help them with the like in a long-term care facility which is contributing to hospital overcrowding mm. which is contributing to the weight lines that everyone is so angry about i and, love like, talking about weight lines it's because it, it's the only time it impacts them yeah. um that's a really good point when they go to the hospital yeah, they get to see so, that they're yeah. sitting for 12 hours yeah. or for eight hours in the middle of yeah. the night yeah. uh, otherwise it doesn't impact them mm-hmm. and so we need to look at how we can make sure that the healthcare system improves for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I think we should be funding it better. Mm. Right now, there's an underfunding of our healthcare system, and it started with the Mike Harris days. And it. The Liberal government froze healthcare budgets a bunch and then just let inflation take its toll. And then now we're at the system we're at now where. People are unable 
to get the healthcare they need in the time they need it. Oh, so austerity doesn't work? Shocking. Ask Greece. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're moving on to poverty now, apparently. <laughs> Um, no, uh, next, my third favorite was taxes. Oh, um, I'm, I'm like jumping at, I'm, I, anyway, let, yeah. you know what, take, we, we will take get to the poverty. stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, so right now there are people in Ontario who own a, or people in Ottawa who own a billion dollars worth of assets. They own Loblaws, they own Shoppers Drug Mart, they own all the Loblaws knockoffs, like Great Canadian Superstore. Um, and those people own a billion dollars worth of assets on the backs of the, the working class and on the backs of giving people 16 or 24 hours a week, not giving them great benefits, mm. not paying them what they deserve to be paid. And so the question becomes, how do we help the people who are being short-shifted when so, some people are making off like bandits? And the answer is taxes. So the Ontario NDP has committed to raising taxes on people who make more than $220,000 a year by 1%. And they've committed by raising taxes on people who make more than $300,000 a year by another percent. Um, hmm. Yeah. What does that mean in real dollars? Um, so right now, the top, the $220,000 income bracket, I think, oh, you know what? I'm not going to be able to give you specific numbers. <laughs> Because I don't have them in front of me, that's and fair. it's literally tax code nuance. Um, no, that's fair. But it's the, I, I guess the implication is that it's disproportionate. Mm-hmm. I think so. We have a progressive tax system in Canada. Mm-hmm. If you make less money, you pay a smaller percentage of your money in taxes. So if you make less than I think ten, like I'm going to say ten thousand dollars a year, you pay no taxes. Mm-hmm. If you make more than it's like twenty two and change. So mm-hmm. 20000 and change uh, dollars a year, you pay a certain percentage in taxes on the first, like, 20000 And then everybody who makes more than that pays the same percentage on the first 20000 mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then as you get up, you hit different thresholds, and then everything over that threshold is taxed at a higher percentage. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's how, that's how progressive tax systems work, and Canada and Ontario both have one of those. And we're just looking to increase the percentage in the top brackets by a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We're also looking to increase the corporate tax rate from 115 to 13% because the Ontario provincial tax corporate tax rate is the lowest amongst all provinces in Canada. Oh, well, what's it in other provinces? Um, it's, we're, it, bringing it up a percent and a half will bring it more in line. Uh, we will no longer be the lowest. We will not be the highest. Okay. I that's couldn't, telling. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I could not tell you specifically where they all are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, fair. I'm just, yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to figure it out, like, relatively. We often talk about increasing taxes, and I don't think people get, how, like, where we are, how far off mm-hmm. it is, and so people often decry the injustice up, of... Up until yeah. uh, the latest round of budget absurdity in the States, uh, <laughs> Canada had a lower... The combined federal and provincial taxes in Canada was 1% lower than the U.S., in the highest province in Canada. Mm-hmm. And after the most recent round of yeah. indebtening the states, um, that is no longer the case. 
Well, I think there's this myth that um, lowering taxes creates jobs. And, you know... It's called trickle-down economics? Yes. <laughs> the data does not... Support that. Yeah. Thank you. When you Eric look... is an economist, just for context. <sighs> I did so not know that. if you want to get into the weeds with her, you should. I could... T- I, I'm totally open. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be a whole other podcast. No, no, no. Not on the podcast. You might lose but... some people. Yeah, right? yeah, I'm yeah. just letting you know. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, yeah, go get into it. <laughs> I mean, if I started talking about chemistry, we definitely lose some people. So. <laughs> Unless you talk about perfumes, then I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> but carry on. I, I, um, the trickle down economics. Yeah, we think that it's now baked into the psyche, and there's an entire generation. I, I, I always say that we've been hoodwinked, mm-hmm. like the Reaganomics. And the Thatcher economies of the 80s mm-hmm. um, has birthed a generation of baby boomers. And by the way, don't even get me started on baby boomers, okay? <laughs> and they have, they, have, um, they have spread this belief that raising taxes should never be done, mm-hmm. which is bullshit. Taxes should only go down, haven't you heard? Yes, <laughs> yes. And services and that, should only go up. Yes, And the yes. deficit should only go down. Now who can't read an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet, huh? <laughs> right. So, you know, we, we have this belief that taxes are somehow bring about jobs. And I just want to say, in the past 30 or 40 years, with those policies, where are we now? Because mm-hmm. we're not in a better place. The median income in Ontario has stagnated. Yes. And that means that um, the average person is making the same amount of money, but the cost of things is so much higher than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Exactly. So the real wage, it too, has stagnated, actually. Yeah. I, Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, the real wage is lowered. Like, the, the av- like, what you can buy for your money... Because a lot of the cost of inflation things I look at don't include housing as part of their like uh, yes, that's calculation true. of the cost mm-hmm. of oh, okay. And so, whoever heard... That'll throw a wrench in things. Yeah, yeah. Everyone... So I grew up hearing never spend more than like a third of your income on... on yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that isn't true for a lot of people that I talk to. How know, could it be? I know so many people who can't like... Who... Where rent is the largest expense that they have in a given month by a wide margin. Um... And so, like, when I was looking for housing, when I was homeless, saving up for first and last month's rent, there were people who were homeless for weeks, who had full-time jobs, who had, who mm. had been, ended up homeless for whatever reason, whether it was a breakup, whether it was because their building became condemned, who couldn't save up the money to get first and last month's rent for weeks, and they had no savings, and so they were stuck in a system that wasn't designed for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and so when we talk about like the trajectory of people's lives, mm-hmm. it just seems as though there's so there's so many holes in the system. Mm-hmm. There's so many cracks in the system and they're widening mm-hmm. because the other thing. So I'm going to I'm going to throw in something else that's kind of technical. Um, the intergenerational wealth transfer. Yep. From the baby boomers to their children is going to be the largest in history. And how that is going to impact the cost of housing mm-hmm. is going to be astronomical. 
it's going to be um, it's going to adversely affect those who don't have mommy and daddy to give them Mm -hmm. a down payment for a house or a house just give them a house or give them a house or Mm -hmm. go to the cottage Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I, I I really so just, just sell the cottage and buy and use that to buy a house. I, exactly. <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? And and so that's just going to exacerbate the income inequality mm-hmm. that we're we're witnessing in this province. So I read a picture of a news article on Facebook um, because that's the generation we live in. And <laughs> the news article was like about how to save money. And the I think I saw that. And so the the picture started it was like um this person had been given a condo by their like parents and they were like, they were renting it out and living with their grandparents. Is this blog TO? This sounds like a blog TO type of thing. No idea. <laughs> yeah. Um and they had like uh they used they'd paid for spin and any student debt because they paid for they pay for it with um, uh, like a like a grant that had been given to them, or education savings plan that they're trying oh, to Oh, RESP. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and then they were like, well, you just save money by like living with your grandparents and your boyfriend to like, and renting out your spare condo and like, yeah. And about how Naturally. anybody could do it. It was about like how oh, anybody could succeed. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Oh, that hurts me so much. Yeah. Well, it's like all these millennial articles. Millennials are killing the car industry. Millennials are doing this. They can't fucking afford shit. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Millennials are killing diamonds and golf. Yes. Those things are expensive and time consuming. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I would argue that those would be my biggest three issues. <laughs> I forgot what the question was. I was like, oh. I don't know how long we spent on it, but it's been I a while. It. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think there was like a lot for people to learn from from mm-hmm. that. And I think you know whether you agree with the solutions or not. Mm-hmm. I think you've identified a lot of important problems for people to think about in this election. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I you know it's not just it's not just about hydro, Erica. <laughs> I can speak to Hydra if you want me to. Because <laughs> it didn't make my top three, but it is an issue for me. It's an issue for me, too. It's an issue for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone who uses electricity. Um, <laughs> we say sitting in a studio. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Erica it, pointed at the lights. Uh, or the various lit spaces and the... Uh... Yeah. I just... I... I... Hydro... <sighs> When there was a there was a, a town hall at some point um, last year, I think late last year, and Justin Trudeau, it was a, a Trudeau town hall, you know, one of his many. The woman who got up and talked about paying for electricity mm-hmm. versus paying for groceries, that's real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is real. So... You mentioned earlier that Thatcher and Reagan had fooled an entire generation of people into believing in Reaganomics. Yep. One of my concerns is that Trudeau is going to have fooled an entire generation into believing that he's progressive. Because um, he has he's like claimed to be a progressive yeah. and he has stolen that word. I was going to say, yeah, he's written the brand. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, he's branded it very well. I must say, it's... it's... Remember what I said about charisma? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, but 
his brand of progressive is not the brand of progressive that I think society needs mm. and that I would argue that I'm advocating for. I think that you could brew that coffee a good deal more bitter. Well, he's mm. he's a centrist at the end of the day. He is. And um, as we're seeing now, because of these structures, these holes <laughs> that we're talking about, the centrist policies of the last, I don't know, uh, how long has it been... I mean, Canada's pretty centrist in general, but it, it really Canada hasn't... Canada as a population is quite left. Canada's one of the leftist countries in the world, like top five. I think that there are still huge gaps in society. I don't think that we are like protecting everyone to the best of our abilities. and that... The bigger those cracks are, the more people fall. Yep. The more, the bigger percentage of the population falls. Mm-hmm. And what we've done is we've, we've taken away manufacturing jobs through those Reaganomics. Mm-hmm. We've replaced them with service, service jobs. jobs that don't have the benefits. Have you watched my debate? Because I said this almost like idea for idea, if oh, not this, word for word, this in is, my last debate. Oh no, this is me. <laughs> yeah, but, um, and then we expect them to, to operate along the same labor trajectory as previous... As strongly unionized jobs, yeah. That's right. And it's not going to happen. The way we even think about this is off. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we need to rethink about what people's experiences are, how they are moving through their lives, mm-hmm. and where they're getting stuck. Mm-hmm. But I also do think that we have imported corporate values into our society, into our way of thinking that believes that if you don't have um, some middle management job, then you failed. Mm-hmm. And that's bullshit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, but we, and we're, we're trying to import like business solutions into government thinking, like the ideas around innovation and entrepreneurship, like dictating public policy. Or oh like my gosh, that's ridiculous. Crafting public policy. Um, like just breathe like, you know, laziness and like, you know, mm-hmm. things focus only on cost benefit analysis and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And so kind of moving, are moving us away from properly public services and into paying for private services in lieu. Do you know what a P3 is? Yes, public-private partnership. Oh, right. They're yeah. garbage. Um, I know. <laughs> so, for the time and time again in Ontario in particular. Yes. And the federal government, because the conservative government really pushed the P3 it's to... It makes the rich friends richer. To um, mixed results at best. At yeah. best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't think that... So, you were talking about, like public services that mm. sorry the air quotes came back um <laughs> public services that aren't like really public yeah. um and i think uh p3s or public private partnerships are like the beginning of that like, are, mm. if not the beginning then the continuation of that move away from the public good um it's a very 90s mba sort of approach mm-hmm. to government that yeah. doesn't work because mm-hmm. the whole premise for public private what the way they sell it to us mm-hmm. is that well the private sector knows what it's doing mm-hmm. so we should just basically outsource a lot of these um services to the private sector mm-hmm. right okay how would people feel if the government was like we're going to build a, a big library we're going to put it like you know, prime location um but we're gonna we're gonna make it through a P three, 
And so this company is going to get to dictate whatever goes on in the library. Um, but they'll get public money to build the library because uh, it's providing a public good. Mm-hmm. And then the company comes in and says, well, we didn't make as much money in the first year as we wanted to, so we're going to start instituting, because the late fees and whatever, so we're going to start instituting a, like, $5 per borrow book, like, yeah, like or $1 per borrow book yeah. fee. Um, and then next year, they're like, oh, we, we wanted to make more money, so we're going to make it 3 And the next year, they're going to make it 5 mm-hmm. And 10 years down the road... You're spending either five dollars a book mm. to borrow, five dollars a time to borrow, or you're spending like a hundred dollars a year on their premium membership that lets you borrow <laughs> as much as you want. I'll raise you one on something that used to be a public good. Yeah, I'll raise you one. Fifteen years down the road, they're like, "Well, nobody's going to the library anymore. Why?" We're going to close the public ones. So we're going to close the public ones. But here's a new private one that we're building that has that membership and the premium and the gold, silver, and platinum membership. Yeah. Because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. And to me, it is, I think, exactly what we're talking about Mm -hmm. is one of, is, is exactly the biggest issues of our time. We fucked up. And in such a way, did did we fuck up? Did our parents? Oh, I shouldn't have sworn. Um, <laughs> ha! We got I you. Say, but I was gonna say anything. Our, well, I I will say when I say we, I mean we've we are yeah are starting. Some of us are starting to look at it differently. Mm-hmm. Others are just you know are basically sheep. And just believe it. Well, there has to be room for that discussion. Like, that's sort of the problem. But we're not having that discussion. No, no, but that's what I mean. Like, so when parties, and I'm not, I would say this as someone who has only ever voted NDP and is a known NDP supporter, so not making any secrets of it. Mm -hmm. And I like the arm-twisting comment. I think, like, that's... I I am also an NDP supporter, for the record. (laughs) We've had different, we've had different answers. So what does that mean to be an intersectional feminist? And how do you live that? So I believe that marginalized groups advocating together have an ability to create real change for all of them in a way that individual marginalized groups advocating independently mm-hmm. don't. And so I don't know why we picked feminism as the, as the like, tie-all, probably because half of the population, give or take, is women, and most other marginalized groups make up smaller percentages of the population. And so marginalized like groups working together have an ability to create real change in society. And I think feminism is understanding that reality and being able being able to work together to push for change for all of us and making sure that none of us get left behind when change comes. Do you think that uh, feminism is inclusive, like in the way that it's being lived now or discussed in the mainstream four? Or? Let's talk about white feminism. Yeah, let's, let's uh-huh. do it. So, I would argue that a lot of people who are using the word feminist are not basing it on a fourth-wave feminism model of feminism. I've encountered people who self-identified as feminists who didn't believe that I had a right to use the word woman. Mm. Because, um, oh, for the record, I'm the first openly trans candidate in... Uh, for a major political party in Ontario. I love um, that it took us that long to get to that <laughs> statement. I'm just I saying. I mentioned it at the top, but you oh. know, you're a lot more than that, so let's get into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I even forgot. That's how... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I had met people who 
argued vehemently with, yeah. with me about my ability to use the word woman to identify with the experiences that I have around femininity and womanhood and what that means. And so um, people, like the word feminism has a lot of people who use it for a lot of different meanings. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of, like, a lot of early suffragettes and feminists argued against the rights of people of color. Yeah. Specifically black folks in the United States. And I don't think that is right. I think that the feminism that we, that I advocate for and that we as society should be advocating for is intersectional feminism and making sure that all marginalized groups are protected. And I think some people who use the word feminism in other contexts in society, um, another one who jumps to mind is Taylor Swift. Um, who... How do you not look... I, like, uh, <laughs> you're going to love this podcast. <laughs> oh. 90% of it is shitting on Taylor Swift. And how like her brand of feminism isn't representative of the brand of feminism that I believe we should be advocating for because... She puts, like, um, women without recognizing intersectionality mm-hmm. at the heart of the issues. Yeah. yeah. Without recognizing that, like, trans women or black women or, like, women with disabilities have it harder than or people without those intersections. Or women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, or working class women. I like the word poor. I feel like it's okay. been, like, work, like, people have been, like, I don't want to be called poor mm-hmm. because it has this negative connotation. But I think when we point out, like, where the the poverty line is and how many people live under it, it really sort of wakes people yeah. up to, one to the, their reality because no one wants to think of themselves as poor. That's actually a huge issue in terms of um, your right policy make and how people vote and how they associate with themselves. Everyone wants to be considered middle class, mm-hmm. and they've expanded the definition of what that means to include wherever they are in that spectrum. Rich mm-hmm. people want to be middle class just so that they can like in like by which I mean upper. Upper middle mm-hmm. class people love to say they're middle class so that they can say they're part of, they, they are, can dictate policy. Mm-hmm. And lower income folks want to say they're middle class because they want, you know, the status that follows with mm-hmm. that and, yeah. and to feel that they are the people every politician and so, you know, allegedly say, purports to speak to a middle class mm-hmm. voter, yeah. which is actually just distorts our perception of, of uh, who's in need of what and when. And I would argue that the NDP should be talking to working class and poor people Mm. with those words and Mm -hmm. not trying to like Mm -hmm. advocate for the middle class who has the other two parties yeah they're good jumping on their ship yeah and and there are distinctions too between working class and and people who are middle class further and and, and further below the poverty line Mm -hmm. there are working class people many who are at the poverty line and Mm -hmm. many more who are below uh, below it as well well maybe we can start talking about class mm -hmm. because we don't really talk about class or how class impacts um decision making or who who gets let in Mm -hmm. and usually it's people with the and from class, we talk about can we can talk about connections, we can talk about barriers to entry, we can mm-hmm. talk about all of these things, not just based on how we look, but class matters, and it matters more in this country than people want to admit. Mm-hmm. So, as we mentioned, you're the first trans candidate in Ontario uh, to be nominated um, for a major for any political. major party, yeah. which is huge that's mm-hmm. awesome yep um how or rather how does it feel and what does it mean to be the first it's a mixture of 
disappointed mm. and excited. I am honored to be the first person people have come out to me. People have told me they came out because I exist and because I've been openly trans and willing wow. to go to bat on these sorts of issues. Um, people say they were so scared and they felt so isolated for so long and then they met me or they saw me and they were like, she can do it, I can do it too. Mm. Um, but I'm disappointed it took this long for us to get somebody like me who's running for public office. Mm. There's a generation of people who are missing due to the AIDS mm -hmm. crisis yeah. mm -hmm. who should have been in office in the 90s or in the 2000s. Actually, the New York Times had a piece about exactly that, mm -hmm. about how the AIDS crisis impacted the, the forming of society mm -hmm. and exactly underpinning what you're saying. So there's a generation of missing LGBTQ people who were like, th like living in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, who would have been sixty now, mm. who would have been sort of people that many politicians like look like or act like, who are missing because of that, because of the crisis and because of the government's choice to be inactive on it at the time. Reagan, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. It's a real sobering, though. I never thought about it in that way, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that is why I'm disappointed to be the first, because mm -hmm. I recognize we are missing a generation of people who mm -hmm. should have been doing this 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Very true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, who did you look up to in, in terms of, or if, if anyone, in, in Canadian politics, in politics or public life, in Canada specifically? I really liked Jack Layton. Mm. I really liked uh, Paul Dewar. Yeah. Um, who was my candidate for a very brief period of time. Mm. Um, and then he lost his election. Yeah. Um, I, uh, Olivia Chow, mm -hmm. um, working with the legacy of Jack's death was very inspiring to me. Mm. Um, like taking over, uh, like part of his roles in, as, in an interim capacity and like just helping to put the party where it, it needed to be. And dealing with an unprecedented amount of sexism and yeah. racism yeah. around, like... I think people appreciate the, the racism, especially, that mm -hmm. he's been up against, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was quite, like, noteworthy to me. Mm. And I recognized that... So that was sort of my, like, first look at how much systemic difficulty people from marginalized backgrounds face when trying to enter politics or trying to, to do things in politics mm -hmm. because like if you want to talk about connections she came in about as connected as you can get to mm -hmm. one of the the most yeah. like public figures in government she didn't tell the line mm -hmm. that was so marginalized people will succeed in the structure as long as they parrot what the structure is saying so it's kind of like it's it's are you it, making predictions about my election no not at all i was i was thinking more of um i was thinking more of slavery and the overseer okay then the overseer mm -hmm. was always black right mm -hmm. and um well no not always black but there was always like a, a liaison so to speak the mm -hmm. samuel jackson character in django <laughs> unchained um and uh it's the so marginalized people can succeed to a certain ex, to a certain point only mm -hmm. to a certain there's a ceiling 
uh, if they parrot mm -hmm. the values of the structure to their own people. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So she didn't toe the line. That was the whole mm -hmm. thing. How dare she not toe the line? Mm -hmm. She's lucky to be here. How many times have I heard that? That we're all just lucky to be here. Like I wasn't fucking born here. Anyway, I will carry on. Mm -hmm. And even if I weren't, I you know, <laughs> exactly. I was, I was thinking that I was like, even if I weren't born here, um, which is really just a function of, of chance, really, mm -hmm. yeah. then so what? I have faced an, a fair amount of hostility in like women's activism around oh, that. Please tell. Um, yes, please do. Uh, so I'm actually going to give you a story of uh, a friend of mine because I think it is more pertinent Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, do you know the Women's March in Ottawa? Yes. Um, we had a special pod on that too. <laughs> we had thoughts. Okay. <laughs> um, so, my friend is a like uh, a trans organizer, mm. um, or a trans activist, or a trans advocate. You can pick whatever word you want. Sure. Um, who was asked to like do stuff with the Women's March, and like came about it being like, do we really want the the pink the pink hats? Um, and one of the, the people who was the organizer of the Women's March was like, why, um, she, she framed it in things like, uh, talking about it as like our March, uh, as if, as if my friend had been like invited into their, into yeah. their house as opposed to yeah. being like a, a co-creator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, like I mentioned before, I've encountered animosity amongst people who are like, um, you shouldn't be using the word women, you shouldn't be using the word woman, um, you shouldn't be doing women's activism. Mm -hmm. I've encountered people who, like, back me 100%, mm -hmm. but it's an additional barrier that a lot of people who do women's activism don't have to face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what would it take to kind of get people more educated on being actually trans-inclusive, like, in a... In terms of feminism specifically. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as, as much time as it takes, because I think this is a really important question. Okay. Um, I think, I, yeah, I think certainly for our listeners, we have a lot of well-meaning people, I'm sure, who listen to this podcast and think that they're excluded from this conversation, mm -hmm. that they're not part of the problem. And I guarantee you a lot of them probably have internalized some transphobia, and I would love for them to hear what we have to say. Um... So, the, there's often questions about how to be a good ally to other trans people. Mm. And trans, you're right, trans people often don't like, think of themselves as having to, uh, to be a good ally to other trans people because they're like, I experience transphobia or I, like, I experience these things too. Uh, I'm going to liken it to like, the women who come out against, against abortion, mm. where they're like, I, I am as a woman belief that I should be able to speak for all women and it's something I'm very conscious of as a trans person who's been given a very wide platform to speak about like issues as they affect our community um there are I think listening is really important I think that people don't listen and give validity to the lived experience of other like trans people the way that they should um I think that we are very quick to build um, like, there's, like, two kinds of hierarchies in LGBTQ circles. Mm. There is the people who are trying to get to the top of the societal hierarchy. Um, so, 
for example, um, like they're trying to be as presentable as possible to the average person. They're trying to be like, I see. we're just like, uh, like gay couples are just like straight couples because right. we pay our taxes and we buy right. suburban We're successful homes. in business and mm-hmm. have reached a certain yeah. strata of and then wealth. The, and then the other, the flip side is um, there are people who like, have you heard of the oppression Olympics? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. People who like will race to the bottom of oppression Olympics and try and say that they are the most marginalized person and that they suffer the most. Mm. And I think that trying to be neither of those groups is really important for society and for mm. activist communities. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Oh yeah. 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 It totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. The, the NDP will say we have 56% of women running or we have like this many percent of people who are LGBTQ or this many percent of people who are like disabled or like mm-hmm. uh, different marginalizations. I'm going to be very curious to see how many of them win their seats mm-hmm. because so am I. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that other political parties are probably guilty and the NDP very well might be of putting people who like people who represent marginalized communities in unwinnable ridings mm. so they can say that they ran them not so that they can say that not so that they can have a voice i think we talked about this it's, with um with michelle Radcliffe. yes i mean it's certainly a, a, a trend that, that parties have uh it's window dressing into, to the next um, degree yeah they want to be able to to boast about those numbers and mm-hmm. it's un- federal liberals we're For talking sure. to you Yes, we are. <laughs> and it's usually also women who will, st- like, you know, will fill the void sometimes. They'll be involved mm-hmm. and they'll feel kind of beholden and they'll say, you know, mm-hmm. I may as well, uh, you know, put my put my views out there. And whereas men will more likely want to know if the riding is winnable. Like, do you know what I mean? And I'm like, I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to do the, like, work for someone unless I'm being, like... I wonder how much, how much how much support... I don't want to spend the 14 hours or 12 hours a day doing work and then get nothing at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Not men. <laughs> um, but I wonder how much support or how much the distribution of support that they get, mm-hmm. especially in those unwinnable ridings, and um, how much of those resources go to the mm-hmm. fundraising that's necessary and the the right campaign manager and mm-hmm. the right personnel in mm-hmm. those positions. Yeah, they don't, yeah, they, the party decides who to send. Exactly. And, that's a good point. and mm-hmm. who, and that's who makes those decisions, I wonder. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to hire my own campaign manager. Awesome. Uh, I hired... Um, someone who came highly recommended and who did fantastically in the interview who happens to be like a mother of a young child mm. um, who has like a long strong background in community activism and community advocacy yeah. and organizing and so I I feel very confident in my, my campaign manager choice and they let me pick my own mm. um, but that means that we needed the funding to come from like the, the writing association right um, some campaigns get sent campaign managers who are like people who work on hills in the, yeah. uh, on in offices on the hill. Yeah. Um, but they get paid leave and are uh, are they paid leave? I think they're just they're paid by the party. I though. think they're, they're definitely paid by the party. I don't yeah. think they're on leave. I think yeah. they're just sent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mail ordered. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're like we're gonna send you to 
wherever riding and you're gonna help on the campaign and right. you just keep, keep getting paid yeah. um, and I know all the parties do this yeah um, I actually don't know if the Greens do but I don't know if that's because they don't have campaign staff or just staff uh, <laughs> yeah um, yeah. yeah so I assume the Greens do I just yeah. don't know but you had to fundraise is what you're saying yeah speaking of that. I'm gonna use this as a shameless plug um, <laughs> if people are interested I'd love uh, I'd love for people to donate because it means that they get to like um, pay for signs and pay for pamphlets and hire more awesome staff. Mm. Um, yeah. And like, pay... where would they donate? Uh, so if you go to ontarioNDP.ca and then you click, uh, candidates mm-hmm. and you scroll down till you find my face, I'm the one with the very bright red hair. Mm. Um, it's like visibly dyed. I suppose my name's also there. Um, if you click on me, <laughs> uh, and you can click like donate to this campaign and you can donate specifically excuse me, specifically to my campaign. I ran where I have my organizing background, where I have my roots, where mm. I, like, where the issues that I care most about are. That's why I'm running in Ottawa Vanier. If there's a writing that has gone solidly one party mm. forever, mm. when it breaks, the question is where does it split to? Exactly. And so I think Ottawa Vanier is set to just not go liberal this election. And it is my hope that I can convince people that the NDP is better for their area and better for society in general than the conservative. <laughs> I, I really believe that we need the next group of young, engaged yeah. activists to enter politics before we'll see systemic change. Yeah. If we keep electing baby boomers up until they're 90, we're not going to see change, the change that we need in, an, in the bulk of our lifetime. Even the ones who claim that they want change, I've witnessed this before, will will stymie efforts to make that change, like, in terms of making that change, because it's something that's uncomfortable for them. And I think that, that people, if change requires a certain level of disruption, which mm-hmm. is uncomfortable. We need to get used to the fact that this is uncomfortable. It may even be fucking painful. I'm speaking to all the people who were like, I could do it, but... Yeah. And then as soon as you hear the but, it's that little voice that says, I can't do it for this reason, or I could come up with an excuse. That's the voice that a lot of men don't have. Right. And so they don't have the... Oh, no, they don't. But (laughs) here's why I can't. And so that's the voice you need to not listen to. And mm-hmm. I have gotten very good at ignoring that you're not good enough or you, need you to don't wait, fit the profile or you need to wait 10 more years. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to be more successful just mm-hmm. after you have kids. Just that's after you true. Have, like, that's true. Yeah. That's the voice that you need to ignore yep. because it's what will tell you just wait a little longer, just wait a little longer. And then your life will pass you by. Thank you so much, Lyra, for coming and chatting with us. Yeah. It's been great. And I hope folks will, um, you know, get more informed as the election day gets mm-hmm. closer and closer and yeah. engage with candidates wherever their writings may be. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were part of putting together the Now What debate in Ottawa Center on gender-based violence and poverty. Could you throw one in Ottawa Van, yeah? Because yeah. <laughs> I'd really love to, like, poke the conservative a couple of times and be like, Oh, they so. might not show up. That's the problem. Did they, they show they, the they did not. No, they, they didn't did show. Not. So, but we... Uh, I could have a lovely chat with Desrosiers. Yeah. 
Well, we have great questions and resources for folks if they want to mm -hmm. put questions to candidates as they come door knocking yeah. um, and engage on these issues with them. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess just to close out. No, nope, nope, oh, nope, no, go ahead. One go more ahead. thing. Um, before, before I let uh, you folks say goodbye, I'm going to ask that if you're listening to this and you have an hour and a half of free time, that you come out and volunteer for your local candidate. Mm. Because you might not think that an hour and a half or two hours of your time is worth it, but I promise you, the local candidate will think differently. Mm. I would love if everyone who listened to this was willing to phone call for me for two hours from your house. And there's a script, and you don't need to go anywhere, mm. and it's really easy. But we need to call... 100,000 people, because there's 100,000 people in our riding, and we do not have the volunteers that we need. If you can do more than call someone for two hours, I'd love to have you come out. We need canvassers, we need data entry people, we need people that need to talk to people, we need people that need to drop leaflets. We just need people willing to do things. And I think getting involved in your community is one of those ways to help make real change. I know a lot of people who say, they want change, but they're not willing to do anything to create it. Mm. And I think that if people really want change, I can't be the only one stepping up. That's fair. Well and said. It, yeah. And it can mm -hmm. be fun. Campaigns are fun. Oh, I'm having a blast. Good. This is like oh, technically so work, but like... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Sorry, you couldn't see me shake my head, but <laughs> yeah, it's technically work, but is it really... <laughs> That's, that's then you know you're doing the right thing. There you mm -hmm. go. Yeah. Well, you guys can catch us on Bad and Bitchy Podcast on Facebook, at Bad and Bitchy uh, on Twitter, at Bad and Bitchy on Twitter. And you can email us at badandbpod at gmail.com. And we'll also take your questions for our advice column, Dear Bitches. Um, and feel free to write in anytime. We're also always canvassing for um, misogynist of the week. So if you got someone in mind and you want us to, uh, <laughs> maybe we have a, a vote for Doug Ford uh, for misogynist of the week. That is not for anything else. So maybe we'll consider that one next. And check out our Instagram stories on Bad and Bitchy Pod. Bye. Bye. <laughs>I know. We did it. See, this is why we're never in charge. Yeah, we're never in charge. Aaron Aaron usually does this. She's much better at it than we are. I still okay. think it was a good ending. <laughs> Sometimes I laugh over it and she keeps it in. I really hope that we you like left it. in the we part like it where you both went like, bye. And I was like, you could have told me we were going to do that. Oh, oh that we're funny. still recording. Okay. Excellent.